We're in Mark chapter 9 tonight. If you want to turn there, that's great. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, feel free to grab one there on either side of you on the, the edges of the tables where the candles are. Um, and if you are a guest of ours tonight, feel free to, to take that home with you. Uh, if you don't have an ESV study Bible or an ESV Bible, or not study Bibles, or just regular Bibles. If you don't have an ESV Bible, please feel free to take that home with you as our gift to you. It's a my mind, the ESV is the best translation that's out there. And so, even if you got 12 Bibles, take that one home with you. So we're in Mark chapter 9. We'll start in verse 14. Uh, but before we get there, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork. Give us some reminder. This is the images of Jesus, part 22. Uh, I believe there's 43 parts. So we're, we're past the halfway point. Very exciting. Yes? Very exciting is now the third quarter. Everything comes back to athletics for me. It's now the third quarter. Uh, title of the message tonight is The Healing of a Man and a Boy. Um, the healing that takes place specifically is of the boy, but the man receives some healing as well. Um, give a, a little bit of reminder of background of the Gospel of Mark. Mark writing his gospel, and, and most of the other gospel writers, in fact, all the other gospel writers, use Mark's gospel as uh, sort of uh, their Wikipedia. What they go to to get information about what they're going to say and what they're going to do comes from Mark. And Mark comes from Peter. Peter was the uh, closest man alive to Jesus, and he spoke to Mark. Mark was his boy. They hung out, and Mark wrote his gospel based on what Peter told him. And Mark's original audience is the the Roman Christians, in a time where Nero is persecuting the Roman Christians. In fact, he's having uh, these massive parties, these orgy parties, where he puts uh, a Christian and and impales them on a stake and sets them on fire, and that's how he he kills Christians uh, so that they can be his light while uh, him and all of his cronies have these, these crazy wild parties. That is the life of the Christian in Rome, is that they will most likely, if, if they're uh, outspoken about their faith, they're going to wind up impaled on a stick on fire as they die. So uh, Nero was a brutal, brutal dictator, and he ruled Rome at this time. And so Mark is writing to these Roman Christians who have this this deep and desperate need to understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He was who he said he was, was who he said he is, and uh, he is the suffering servant. As Mark begins to, to point out, most of what has happened up until this first half. It's just Mark showing Jesus, exercising his authority. And here, from this point forward, from actually two, two messages ago, like the middle of, of chapter 8 and on, is, is Christ, every physical and every spiritual step that Christ takes from that point on is moving towards Jerusalem and his eventual death. And so Jesus now is less about his flexing his authority and more about showing the fact that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the suffering Messiah. So that is the... The background for the book of Mark, it's, it's important for us to understand. Any study of Scripture, any real study of Scripture, you have to understand the background of the book the author is and who he was writing to and, and what their context was. And so that's important for us to see, and we'll draw some application from that as we go along. Before we get to it, I, I, I found some verses this week in, in Jeremiah that, that paint the picture of the grand scope of what Mark is trying to teach to us here, what, what Mark is trying to teach that Christ taught back uh, when this stuff was actually happened. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It's, it's in your bulletin. It's, it's beautiful. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. The, the point of, of our life and the, the point of this message, and I hope to bring it home at the end, is not about the healing and not about the spiritual healing of either one of these two guys. Or not about the, the hearers, the, the, the book of, of, of Mark is not specifically uh, about the healing and all these things and all the authority of Christ. It's about us coming to a, a revelation of who Jesus is. This is all of Scripture, is God revealing Himself and revealing His Son to us. And so the, the point of, of, of the message tonight, the point of, of these verses in Mark, is Jesus Christ revealing Himself to this world. Uh, 
want to take a second and, and back up to, to what we learned about last week. That uh, I happened to be in the Riviera Maya and at, at, a, at a beautiful resort. Our 10th anniversary was last Friday night, and so my wife and I got to spend five days there. And I leaned over her during the worship time and said, you know, I w- I'm, I'm glad that I'm here and not there. And I, I hope you guys don't don't think that's that's cheesy or, or like, too pastoral of me. But honestly, if I was given the choice, I, I, I want to be here diving in to the Word of God with, with my family. And, and that's where I am. So it's a... It's, it's very exciting. So Dave, last week, preached, taught about the transfiguration. And ultimately what's happening in the transfiguration is that the, the makeup of Jesus Christ is changed. He, he loses his physical body and takes on a different body. And it's a glorified, perfectly white, brilliant white, as no man could bleach, perfect perception of who Jesus was and all of his glory and all of his splendor. And... These three disciples, Peter, James, and John, got to, got to witness this. And so the stuff that we're going to see tonight is what was happening while Jesus was being transfigured. And what's happening is there's stupid, petty, religious argument that's happening. So while Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are, are experiencing this beautiful intimacy of, of knowledge of one another and knowledge of, of, of who Jesus is in his true essence, these knuckleheads, and by knuckleheads, I'm talking about the other nine disciples and the religious scribes of the day are down arguing about the the mission of their life or arguing about how to go about casting a demon out of somebody. And, and they're, they're both total and complete failures because when Jesus comes down the mountain, the, the, it, the demon is still inside of this boy. So uh, I want to give you guys a, a clip uh, to... To kind of set this up and, and see the picture of, of what's happening, bridge the transfiguration to this week. We'll bridge uh, this this clip that I'm going to show. It's from a movie called Remember the Titans. And Remember the Titans is uh, in the set in uh, basically the, the backstory is there is a, a lot of segregation, a lot of busing that's come in, a lot of black students now coming to a white school. And because of all this busing that's happened, this beloved white coach now has to become the assistant coach, and a, and a black guy comes in. It's Denzel Washington, and he's, he plays the character. He comes in, and he becomes the head coach. So there's a lot of racial conflict that's happening. And just before the scene that we'll see, there's been, uh, like, a, a training camp for these students, and it was white against black. And there's a, a white captain and a black captain of this team, and, and they're, they go at odds throughout the whole training camp. And then Finally, Denzel Washington leads these, these students to embrace one another because they've got this connection of they want to win football games, and it's in Texas, and you know everything about Texas is high school football. And, and so they, they lay aside the differences of, of their families. They lay aside the differences of their parents, of, of their cultures, and come together for this one reason so that they can win football games. They have a mission and a purpose for their life is to win a state championship. And they lay aside their differences for that. And so what's happened at this training camp is these, this white captain and this black captain who were at odds are now embracing one another. And they've gone from this, this great experience away at training camp where it was just them, like we see in the Transfiguration, back to real world, real life. And there's all this chaos that's happening, this, this challenging of one another, this, this hatred of black and white, this hatred of segregation and all these things. And so that's the, that's the setup. And the two main characters, the two people that you'll see speak are that black captain and that white captain. So Roll that clip, Kyle. Hey, man. Hey, Julius. Man, it's crazy out here, man. Yeah, well, what did you expect? I don't know. I ain't quite expected to be like this. Ah, sorry. Julius, this is Emma. Camp over now, huh? Back to the real world, Bertia. This is what they integrating us for? We'd have been better off staying where we were. He says their camp is over now. We'd be better off staying where we were. Um, and what's, what's happened, the transfiguration is over. Peter, James, and John have been in this beautiful, intimate moment with Christ, and they come back to the same sort of chaos that we see here. Um, 
So let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they being Peter, James, John, and Jesus, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Not unlike the picture that we just saw here. If there would have been placards, there, there would have been placards there. What are you doing? There's this religious argument that's happening. So while Jesus is showing Peter and James and John himself in his true essence, this argument is first taking place. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John walk in on the middle of this argument that's been happening when this beautiful transfiguration has just happened. Verse 15, And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and foams. he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So basically what's happened here is this guy has got a son with a demon, and he comes to his disciples and said, you've been with Jesus, you know how to do this, cast this demon out of this, out of this boy. And they try and they can't, so the scribes come, and they start arguing with them about how to cast out demons. Commentators talk about the, the scribes, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and these people that, that you hear about in Scripture a lot had their way of casting out demons, and the disciples had a totally, completely different way. So this argument is about how to cast out a demon. My way is right, no. My way is right, no. My way is right, no. My way is right. The argument basically is about religious practices. It's about missiology. And missiology is... I'm going to use that word a few times here. Uh, let me define it for us. Missiology is the systematic study of the theory and practice of Christian missions. It is the systematic study of the theory and practice of Christian missions. So, these people are... The, the mission of these guys here is to cast this demon out of this, out of this boy. And their way to go about it differs. And so Jesus comes and, and these guys have been arguing about their missiology. And... For uh, it's how to basically to, to sum it up. This is a that definition is a, a textbook definition. Basically, is why we how we do and why we do what we do. Um, in other words, we have on our website and in some of our material we have vision statements that that make us up as a church as North Church. There's I think there's seven or eight statements that that kind of lay out our vision and the thing we want to be. And these vision statements shape what we want to do. They define our missiology. And let me, let me bring two specific ones out to you. We want to be a church that meets the physical needs of others in God-called ways. It's one of the vision statements. You can find it on the literature that we, our, our uh, membership covenants and our, and our membership uh, class, and you can find it on our website, these, these statements. First, a church that meets the physical needs of others in God-called ways. And and we've really renewed this purpose, renewed this vision. A couple of weeks ago, we were uh, doing the barbecue, and we raised, like, what was it, $700, Rebecca? A little over $600 uh, to give to the, the local food bank. And so trying to meet the needs of others in God-called ways. Um, and this morning, we were our, our interns were working with uh, the Lee Hamilton School, which is where we're going to be give, doing the backpacks for they were talking to the principal there, and they bumped into one of the janitors who had this problem. He couldn't get up on his roof to paint his roof, and he really needed some stuff to be painted. And so some of our people were out there today. That's what Dave was mentioning uh, during the welcome time. And so trying to meet the needs of others in God-called ways. I'm, I'm not saying this to say, hey, look at us. I'm saying this that this is a vision of ours, and that paints our missiology. So why we do what we do. We want to serve others in, in God-called ways. And that plays itself out in the mission of us. And ultimately, as we do that, people see the love of God and we begin to, to develop relationships with people so that we can glorify God and show who He was, who He is. Vision statements, vision shapes our missiology. The second thing, we want to be a church that's valuable to the Christian and non-Christian community. We've just, the guy we painted this house for this morning, we've, we've just begun to connect with this guy. I've got no clue. I've, I've never even met the guy. Our interns have met him uh, and I have no idea where he is spiritually, if he believes or he doesn't believe or if he's been burned by church or if he's devout and, and part of a church. And, and all, I, I have no idea. But ultimately, it doesn't make any difference his spiritual condition, us and our, our willingness and our desire to serve 
him, to serve Jesus by serving him. Um, so we want to be a church that's valuable to the Christian and the non-Christian community. And, and these things, as you see us having done these things and see us doing these things and get involved with us doing these things, this plays out as our missiology. This is how we want to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to suffer and he came to serve this world. We want to do these same things in our world and in our culture. And, and so that shapes our missiology. And, and what has happened here is, is a silly religious argument. They have missed the point, and so they wind up arguing about the missiology themselves. It would be like somebody coming up to us and saying, you know what, I, I'm not really sure that painting somebody's house is the best way to, for you to spend your time. And, and we wind up arguing about what the best way is to spend our time and spending less time actually applying the the mission of Jesus Christ to a lost and to a dying world. And that's what's happened here with these disciples. That's what happens here with these scribes, that they're arguing over mission and they lose completely the fact that there is a man and a boy before them that are in great need. Do you see that? And, and that's, the, that's the purpose and the point of mission is how we can figure out what we're going to do to serve these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the, that's the heart of, of the issue that's happening here and what Jesus does uh, here. So back to our story. The argument is, is here about missiology. In fact, it's about ineffective missiology. These, these guys are arguing so much about missiology and they're arguing so much about ineffective missiology because ultimately the demon is still in this boy and the father is still at a loss for how to, how to help his boy. So, Mark chapter 9, verse 19. Back to the scripture. And he answered them, this is Jesus talking, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I want to read that again. Before I do, I want you to look for the words that are being spoken by Christ. He is the, this, These sentences are all about, look at me, pay attention to me, draw near to me, let me fix the problem. And that, that has to, remember, this is ineffective missiology from the scribes, ineffective missiology from the disciples. And here is Jesus speaking, here is the key to effective missiology. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Be with you. Simple phrase. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Bring this person to me and, and, and I will heal him. You come to me and you will hear and understand and get the purpose, your mission. I will paint your missiology for you. Verse 19 says that. Jesus here. The God-made plan of redeeming mankind would rest upon these men, the three men, Peter, James, and John that he was with, and these nine guys that are arguing with the scribes. The, the redemptive plan of all of history. God decided years, thousands and thousands of years before this event happened that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled and redeemed to him. Even though we were sinners, Jesus would come and live a perfect life, and we would take on his life so that we could have uh, acceptance with a holy and perfect God. This is the redemptive plan of mankind, of, of God for mankind. And the plan of Jesus is to leave that redemptive plan with these people. And Jesus is about three weeks, four weeks from his death at this point when he's uttering these words, knowing that the redemptive plan of mankind is reliant upon these guys living out the missiology that he gives to them. And so Jesus is, is very specific be with me. You got issue. You're trying to find out what your purpose is, what your mission is. Be with me. Be with me. And you'll hear that from me over and over again tonight. And, and at the end, Jesus talks about prayer. And it's a, a different kind of prayer. And we'll do that in a little bit. But it's, it's about being with Jesus. We are seeing this scene of failed, self-reliant missiology. The scribes relying upon themselves to carry out their mission. Nine disciples worrying about, caring about, relying upon themselves to carry out their mission. And it's error. And Jesus here points out their error. You are a faithless generation. Bring him to me. You come to me and I'll give you that. So as we carry out our mission, two important statements for us to, to bring here uh, to light, to, to bring, to apply to our lives in our world as we seek to, to live out the mission of Jesus. 
First of all, Jesus. Nearness to Jesus is the key to success in mission. Nearness to Jesus is the key to success in mission. If you're walking around this planet or or even as a part of this church, as we kind of we kind of struggle with being small, we kind of struggle with with knowing our place and where we are and what what God has for us. We've been together now two and a half years and and what does God have for us and we're seeking his mission and his vision and his purpose for who we are. It's it's vital for us. A lot of the meeting that, that Dave talked about, our family meeting that's coming up at the end of August, is going to be talking about these sort of things. How do we get near to Christ to understand who we are and what our purpose is and what our mission is and what our vision ought to be. The key to that, as Christ is pointing out here, is draw near, be near to Him. And then the second thing is that Jesus does not allow failed expectation to distract Him from His mission. Jesus doesn't allow failed expectation to distract Him from His mission. Imagine... Go back to our clip that we talked about. Imagine the, the frustration that these two guys and even the rest of the football team had to deal with. As they went and they connected with one another and they saw their purpose, they saw their vision to come together and they go back to their world and nobody gets it and everybody's at odds and everybody's wanting to tear them apart. Same thing happens here. Jesus comes back and he's just been in the midst of this beautiful setting of the transfiguration and he comes back to find nine of the 12 guys. He's going to leave this ultimate redemption of mankind plan with, and they're arguing nonsense, denominational, religious stupidity with each other. Jesus could have allowed that failed expectation to paint what he did. But instead of getting angry and going off by himself and, and passive-aggressive or being frustrated and rebuking these people hardcore and, and not doing anything about it, Jesus rebukes them and then he continues on his mission, filling out his purpose, which is what, where we pick up the story in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. Not where I'm going, not what we're going to, the main point of the message tonight, but the, the beauty of the knowledge of the power of Jesus Christ. The evil spirits in this world are freaked out at the presence of Jesus Christ. Has to pour courage into us. Has to pour courage into the Roman Christians who could wind up impaled and on fire for following Jesus. The Spirit immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood... And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I want to stop and pause. I say this a lot. This is, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard this, this message, this, this piece of scripture before. But I, I don't want familiarity with the passage to allow us to miss the circus that's happening here. Probably five minutes ago, Jesus was on a mountain transfigured. Different body. He was brilliant, perfectly white. Peter, James, and John beheld that. They got to see Moses and Elijah and all the brilliance of what was happening. Moments later, Jesus comes down the hill and sees this argument happening, and now there's hundreds of people that are gathered around Jesus. And it's probably a big circle. Imagine fitting a hundred people into this room and Jesus having this conversation with this boy who's flailing on the ground and foaming at the mouth. Just craziness happening. Just utter craziness that's happening. And don't miss the, 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 the scene that's actually happening here because we're familiar with this passage. Back to verse 22, the second half. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Then some great, beautiful, honest, humble words come out of the mouth of this man. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Every time I've read this passage, this phrase seems to contradict itself. I believe. Help my unbelief. But with the chaos of the moment, 
and the, the passion that a father has to feel for his son and the, the hurt and pain that his son is going through has to just overwhelm this guy. And then the, the craziness of the moment, watching these religious people argue with each other about how to do life and how to, how to live your, what mission to live your life on and how to carry out that mission and arguing about all that nonsense. And now his son is now in the midst of, of one of these fits and the chaos that has to happen. And I can, as a dad, I can connect with this, with this father. I believe, help my unbelief, it's confusing. I don't know what's happening, but Jesus, please, Jesus, please help us. And we just had... Uh, the first Sunday of each month is our prayer gathering. We, we gathered around where, where these chairs are in a circle and, and just cried out to God that he would, he would draw near to us and, and bring us near to him and, and, and put a vision and a purpose and a mission in our life and help us to carry that out and, and to, to rise up as husbands and rise up as, as fathers and, and mothers and, and wives and, and come together as a body of believers and, and take that passion to a culture. And, and that's who we want to be. And, and Desiring for to, to draw near to Jesus in the midst of that, and, and and I'm connecting with the beauty of this. God, let us be that. We desire to be that. Help our unbelief. We don't know what we're doing. Immediately, the father cried out, "I believe. Help my unbelief." One of the commentators that I read as I as I preach through this series on Mark is a guy named William Lane, and he says this. The ambivalence in his confession is a natural expression of anxiety in the earnest desire to see his son released. He's confused. He doesn't know what to do. He's full of anxiety. He's full of ambivalence. But all he wants to do is see his son released. But it also is a candid plea for help at the point where his faith is ready to fail. It's a candid cry for help at the point where his faith is ready to fail. And as, as I was preparing this message this week and, and connecting with this father and his sick child and connecting with my sort of father relationship of this church and as we lead and move and the anxiety that I feel for our future, uh, I, I, I connect deeply here and... I confess before God in my, my prayer class, I, I confess before you that my faith sometimes fails. And this is the cry of my heart for my children, the cry of my heart for my wife, the cry of my heart for this church. I believe, but God, help my unbelief to draw near to who He is. But it's a, a beautiful proclamation from a, a father who is just completely at the end of himself. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I've, I've really wrestled with, with this verse. What, is this, what does this mean? This cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So let's look for a second at this word, prayer. The word prayer here in the Greek, the New Testament written originally in a language called Greek, and it's probably got a thousand times as many words as we have, so their words are stronger, have more power. That's a word picture language. And it, it directs, uh, to, to speak in Greek is to, to quantify what you're saying better. And the, so when we hear prayer, we hear us talking to God. But ultimately, when Jesus says this word prayer, he's saying something completely different than what we immediately understand. Dear God, blah, 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 amen. That's what we hear with, with prayer. But what Jesus is communicating is something 
totally different. The Greek word that he uses here for prayer is prosuke. Prosuke is the word for prayer. It's used in Mark 29, and it comes from the word prosuhamai. And prosuhamai is a compound word using two words, prosh and yushamai. All right? It's a com- it's, sorry to get into Greek class on you there, but ultimately this word for prayer comes from a word that's a compound word, pros and yuhamai. And now let's define what these two words are, which gets at the core, at the heart of what Jesus is communicating. Yuhamai is a simple form of pray to God. Yuhamai, just, it's simple, pray to God, dear God, blah, 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 amen. Our immediate reaction, understanding of what prayer is about. Pros is a strengthened pronoun that adds the relation of nearness to the word. So it's, it's, it's an intense prayer. It's a drawing near to God. Remember we were talking about the, the key to mission is to draw near to Jesus Christ. That's what this word is communicating, to draw near. And the, the interesting thing is, is in the Greek language, there, is, there are two prefixes, P-R-O and P-R-O-S. P-R-O is, is simple. I'm near to Sue. P-R-O-S is a stronger word of our relationship. If I were to go and to embrace her, that's P-R-O-S. So it's, it's deep, it's intimate, it's close, it's, it's, it's close on steroids. It's, it's this huge closeness to Christ. That's what's being communicated. I, I think there's, there's chuckling for me using the word steroids. Uh, but... I don't, I don't want to move past this until I feel like we have a good handle on what's happening here. Jesus says, the only way to cast out this demon is to, to beg me, to draw near to me. Me lies the power. To live out the mission and the purpose for your life is to draw near to Jesus Christ. To draw near to who He is, to His essence. In the midst of, of a crazy, wild, chaotic scene... In the midst of a crazy, wild, chaotic culture, draw near to Christ as we seek to live out the mission of our life. That's what is being communicated by this word prayer. It's not, you didn't pray hard enough. It's not, you didn't have enough faith. It's none of that. Draw near to Jesus. The presence of Christ in this culture, in this scene, that allowed for this child to be healed. And the implied teaching is that Jesus is teaching about the intimate knowledge of who he is, um, which all of this, all this thought has led me to, to this question: What about the times when God does not heal? Where is He there? Is is our mission failed? Is our nearness to God a failure in those moments? A, a big, huge. What, what I've understood to be, as I, as I read culture commentators, as I read Christian culture commentators, the, the biggest problem that our society has with religion and with God <coughs> excuse me, is this problem of pain. What happens? How, is, how can God be all-powerful and all-loving at the same time in a world where pain and tragedy exists? And so I've, I've wrestled with that. What do we make of times when God doesn't heal? What do we make of that? Is there a lack of faith? Is there something wrong? Is there a lack of compassion in the person of Jesus Christ? Should we distrust Jesus in times where he doesn't heal? When a marriage fails, when a loved one dies, when there is rape, when there is murder, when there is sexual abuse, should we distrust God in those times? These are fair questions and questions that God is big enough to deal with. Doubt is a powerful tool in the hands of God. Did you hear that? Doubt is a powerful tool in the hands of God. When we come to God and ask these questions, when we're afraid to ask these questions of God, God, where were you when my marriage fell apart? Where were you? God, I distrust you. What, what are you doing? What Help me. When we, God is, is big enough to answer those questions. God is big enough to handle those questions. God is big enough to show himself to be big enough to rise above that and and give us strength and give us power and anointing as we ask these questions. 
This week, Matt Hahn, one of our college students who's uh, away at a uh, retreat teaching youth this week and, and next week, uh, his six-month-old nephew passed away, I think it was a Tuesday, uh, passed away on Tuesday, six months old. Uh, he had some sort of genetic disease that attacked his muscle structure. And basically, a child is, death is inevitable for a child that, where this advances. Uh, and what happened is the, the muscles that make the lungs work on a child just stopped altogether. And so the kid couldn't breathe. And, and every breath was a fight, was a struggle, caused deep pain for this little six-month-old boy named Ryan. And uh, I got a chance to connect with Matt because we have a, a he's, he was an intern with us last semester. And so I, one of our, got to disciple Matt for, for a semester and, and got to get close with him. And, and he's got a younger sister that I got to connect with a little bit through the, through the deal. And so I went to the, went to the funeral on Friday. And I got to, before I went to the funeral, I got to read some, some stuff that, uh, her name is Jen Hahn. It's, it's Matt's uh, wrote on a blog. And uh, I want to post this stuff on, on, our, on our site because it's, it's, it's beautiful what, what she wrote. Um, she said this. Love, this is... was done he was they they buried the boy and the the dinners happened and the family is away and it's just her and her husband they they put their their daughter who's three to bed and her husband this is what, what she writes in that moment love sustained us all through this difficult time our marriage our children our family friends our church family and above all else the love that Christ has placed in our hearts. May we all never forget that He is Almighty. I'm, I'm struck by a mother who, three hours before she wrote this, put her six-month-old son in the ground. She has the, the perspective and the Christ in her to say, above all else, the love that Christ has placed in our hearts, may we never forget that He is Almighty. And going right along with the fact that God is Almighty is her son is dead. If God is Almighty and her son is dead, God had something in mind with the death of this six-month-old baby. And I tell you, man, it was the... It's a really hard moment. I feel even selfish to say it was a hard moment for me to walk up there and see this this little three foot long casket and this beautiful little boy sitting there. Uh, but it was. But the, the the strength, the God placed strength in this this mother was was a beautiful thing. And and she writes beautifully. I, I hope to to get her a link to her site so you guys can all read it. It's beautiful, fascinating Christ stuff. But the question is, was, was the faith of his parents, of little Ryan Hahn, was their faith insufficient? Were their prayers insufficient? Was their connection to Christ insufficient? I say no. Our perspective is so upside down. Several years ago, my wife and I had uh, first we had we had a, a child miscarry, and then Hannah Grace came along, and then we had another child miscarry, and and, and I've told the story before that it's it's a really difficult time for us to to wrestle with that and and what happened and where was God in that and and to to wrestle with that, but well, let me say this. Every bit of, of sin that we have is rooted in our unbelief that God has our best interests in mind. Let me say that again. 
Every bit of sin is rooted in our unbelief that God has our best interests in mind. Can it be true that the best interest of Jen Han was for Ryan to die? I don't know. But I know this. The strength mother burial of her son only come through a supernatural implanting of the Holy Spirit in this woman. And the same thing can be said when I connect back to the miscarriages that we had. I can't begin to describe the hurt and the pain and the, the anger even, especially during the second that I felt towards God. But at the same time, I can't begin to describe the, the beauty of the strength that He placed in my heart. God is using pain to show that He is of greater value than anything this world has to offer. And that includes parents, that includes children, that includes spouses, that includes jobs, everything in life is nothing in comparison to the beauty of knowing Christ Jesus. He is of unsurpassed value. Knowledge of Him, deep Intimate knowledge of Him is, un, is of unrivaled value. But our problem, when we attack these issues, what happens when pain strikes, when tragedy strikes, our problem is that we are self-focused. Pain is something that we feel and we want to be saved from, for, in our perspective. But pain is a tool in the hands of God to get us to see that He is of supreme value, not the stuff in this world, not the created things in this world. Even our, our understanding of heaven and hell paints this picture. Most of the time, we walk around this planet wanting to get to heaven just so we don't have to endure hell. It's got nothing to do with the fact that we with Jesus Christ for Because our view of God, our view of life, our view of pain, our view of the world always is self-centered, self-focused. We've got to change that around. As we walk and live in mission on this planet, we have to turn it around and be God-centered in our focus. Be God-centered in our dealings with the world. Be God-centered in our dealings with pain. God, why are you doing this? How are you showing yourself? And God will show Himself strong. We will be able to react the way that Jen Han reacts when she says, you are an almighty God. At the burial of her six-month-old son, she says, you are an almighty God. And next, with Jesus Christ, who He is. One of my favorite authors, J.I. Packer, in a book called Knowing God, says this, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. You are not here to live a life free from pain. You are not here to live a life of perfect luxury. It's not why you're here. That's not why Jesus Christ died. None of that is true. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, all of life's problems, all of life's issues, all away. You're here to know God, to be intimate with Him. Go back to Mark chapter 9, verse 19. And He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring Him to me. <coughs> then verse 29, He talks about prayer. This is a kind you can only release through connection to me. This word prayer that we studied about. It's all about God. It's all about understanding and having a deep and intimate knowledge of who He is. There's an old song that I used to sing in my high school youth group, and I'm about to experience my 20th uh, high school reunion. That's right. I am old. 20 years ago and later, <laughs> Charlie's laughing at me. 
You're not old. There's an old song that we used to sing in my youth group. Uh, it goes like this. Lord, you are more precious than silver. You are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing I desire compares with you. Is that true? Very simply, is that true? I got a feeling for most of us in the midst of pain, that ain't true. Nothing I desire compares with you. You're more beautiful than silver and diamonds, more precious than gold. Is that true? I want to read you two passages of Scripture and then we'll be done. These are Peter and Paul's thoughts on the value of knowing Jesus. Don't try to turn. Just let these words wash over your mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes by, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials reveal Christ to your heart. That's what Paul is, or Peter is saying. Trials reveal strength and majesty and perfection of Jesus. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that it is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the sub- subsequent glories. Deep theology about how we connect with the sufferings of Christ as we suffer in this world. And as we do, we connect with who Jesus is. We connect with, with His heart. And, and we know Him greater as we suffer. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the things which angels long to look. What has been provided to you in the person of Jesus Christ is the thing that angels, the beautiful created angels, long to look into what we know. Very quickly, very simply, Paul. Indeed, I count thing as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything is a big word. Everything is my wife. Everything is my four kids. Everything is this church. Everything is my parents, my friends, all of you. Everything is everything. Everything is loss. When compared to not Jesus Christ. I have begged God to connect my heart with what Paul felt in that moment. That I could truly say, everything is loss. Compared with just knowing you. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as... And that is the Greek word for a word I can't say in church. Look it up. 
I count everything as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In order that I may gain Christ. When tragedy strikes, when pain strikes, when God doesn't show up and save the day as He did with His boy, may we be able to say, I have suffered the all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's go to this great God. Father, I thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank You for my wife. I thank You for my four beautiful children. I thank You for this church. I thank You for my friends. But God, I ask You to allow them in my mind and in my heart to put them in perspective. To see them as created gifts of Yours that I trace back to You and I worship You for giving me moments with them, years with them, life with them. But God, they don't compare to the sweetness and the beauty of knowing You as my Lord. God, and I stand here desiring to be filled with humility, God. Understanding fully and completely that I cling to my wife and I cling to my children. Sometimes in a sinful way, God. That I desire them more than I desire You, God. God, I beg of You to, to allow each of us to be in a place where we could consider You truly more precious than silver, more costly than gold, more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing we desire compares to You, God. And that we count everything in this world rubbish compared with knowing You, God. I thank You for this opportunity to connect with Your Son as He is walking towards His death in these Scriptures. He's revealing Himself to us. I love You. Be with us now as we enter this time of response. Guide our hearts to respond in ways that are worthy of You. It's in Your Son's perfect name. Amen.